0: Before we turn to God's holy word, as we continue our sermon series through familiar stories of the Old Testament, let us turn to God in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, seeking that you would reveal yourself to us through this, your holy word. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we are in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. You will recognize this story. It is the story that we refer to as the Tower of Babel. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. One would hope that humanity would seek to live in a way more pleasing to God following the flood. Uh, Pastor John laid out for us last Sunday how the flood was a demonstration of God's just judgment against human sinfulness. It was God's wrath poured out on the wickedness of men. But if we were to continue on with the text, with what happens immediately following the flood account, then we would quickly see the fallenness of man persisted after the flood before we even get to the end of the ninth chapter of Genesis seemingly before the rainbow had even faded from the sky we get this strange and unexpected story of Noah becoming drunk and passing out with no clothes on in his tent and one of his sons Ham acting in a way that dishonors and humiliates his father So if we were hoping for a turning from sinful ways to back to relationship with the Lord in this new post-flood creation, then we will very quickly be disappointed because what we actually get is another fall story. And if we're paying attention, then we will find some similarities between this fall and the first fall from Genesis 3. We find Noah partaking of the fruit of his garden and finding himself naked. One son, like the serpent, takes advantage of his father while the other two sons, like God, seek to cover his nakedness. So there is already an ominous cloud hanging over the narrative as chapter 9 ends with Noah blessing two of his sons, Shem and Japheth, and cursing the other. Well actually cursing Ham's son Canaan It's setting us up for what is to come With more sin and rebellion against God Then we have what's known as the table of nations In Genesis chapter 10 Which is basically a genealogy of the sons of Noah So really really exciting stuff right I know that all of you get really enthused When you get to a long list of names in scripture right In all seriousness, though, it it is a chapter that we probably skip right over when we're reading through Genesis, but the list does reveal some really interesting things, especially in light of the end of chapter 9. So, for instance, when we look at the descendants of Ham, the cursed son, and the nations that come from them, then we find some names that we might recognize. If we know anything about the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, then we know a little something about the Canaanites. And we've heard of some of these nations like the Jebusites and the Amorites. And we recognize some of these places like Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah. All of you at least will recognize those last two names. They are synonymous with human wickedness. And tucked in this list of names and nations is a little aside about Nimrod, the great grandson of Noah. His name means we shall rebel. He's described as a mighty man and a mighty hunter. And we could say more about him, but it will suffice to say that Genesis notes that he was a builder of cities, among them Babel which sets us up for chapter 11. It is a city mentioned in a list of descendants of Noah who have all been dispersed to make many nations with many languages. Chapter 11 will now tell us how we got there, how descendants from one man ended up many nations with many different languages. The story we know as the Tower of Babel. Perhaps as children, we heard this story and we thought that it was interesting. Perhaps as children, we even got a simple idea of what the story was about. It's about God scattering people because they were trying to build a tower to the heavens. They were trying to reach God, right? That is at least the way that I, in my simple-mindedness, thought about the Tower of Babel as a child. But even as Verse 4 tells us these men sought to erect a tower with its top to the heavens, in the heavens. Building a tower up to God isn't exactly what's happening here. We have to interpret verse 4 in light of the, the nine verses of this chapter. And when we do that, we find that the passage is really about sinful human ambition. About humans in their pride trying to make themselves great apart from God. And it's about God in response to this sinful ambition, frustrating their efforts. So this is what we want to focus on this morning. We want to focus on these two things from this passage. First, human sinful ambition. And second, the divine response to this sinful ambition. So first, let's look at the sin of the people at Babel. If we're paying careful attention, we get a clue from the very get-go that things are about to go sideways. In verse 2, there is this phrase, as people migrated from the east. Now, the ESV doesn't exactly capture the Hebrew very clearly, at least in my humble opinion. Other translations put it this way, as men moved eastward. And saying it that way draws our minds to the eastward movement of humanity after the fall. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, a cherubim was placed at the east of the garden to guard access to the tree of life, indicating that Adam and Eve, Eve's movement was eastward away from Eden. After Cain killed Abel, Scripture notes that he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. East of Eden. Later in Genesis, when Lot left Abraham, which way did he go? To the east, where he met disaster in Sodom and Gomorrah. There are several other examples, but the point is that eastern movement is indication of rebellion against God and movement away from the place of blessing. So there has been a steady downward flow of of man's depravity the further eastward he is gone so these people are moving eastward and what happens well they get to this plain in the land of Shinar and settle there that's what the rest of verse 2 tells us and this might seem harmless enough they found a nice piece of real estate in the fertile soils between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and so they were just going to stop and set up shop there. Shinar, by the way, is otherwise known as Babylonia or Babylon. That's interesting, isn't it? But here's the thing. We need to remember that God had instructed Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. Their mandate was to spread Eden across the face of the earth as God's representatives. Obviously, the fall interrupted this plan. But then God started afresh with Noah and his family. And what did he tell them when they got off the boat? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what do we find here in chapter 11. We find the descendants of Noah in this post-flood, this post-diluvian world, not going forth and living out this mandate. Instead, we find them getting to this region of Shinar and making some different plans. Not to go forth and live to God's glory as his ambassadors on the earth. No, instead they stop and begin plotting ways, as verse 4 tells us, to make a name for themselves. Out of fear that they would be spread over the face of the whole earth. So these were their ultimate goals make a name for themselves and prevent being scattered. This flies directly in the face of obedience to God in His Word. These folks made their own greatness their chief end, it wasn't God's glory. They weren't trying to make his name great in all the earth. They didn't have room for him as they sought to exalt themselves to his place. And that is really what this tower is about. A tower with its top in the heavens is not necessarily a tower trying to reach God, but a tower that is attempting to exalt humans to the place of God. Most biblical scholars agree, based on the description here, that this tower was a ziggurat, which, as one scholar describes, is a lofty, massive, solid brick structure, multi-staged, like giant porch steps up to heaven. It's essentially a stepped pyramid. And the clue here is in verse 3, which speaks of the plans to build it out of brick. The text says, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. We will later see this is not how God's people built things. It's how Mesopotamians built things, which is pointing us to the reality that this was a Mesopotamian religious structure, a structure associated with the false gods of that region. Now, there's a little mockery here in the text. Because the ancient myths of that region tell of the gods making these structures. But Genesis tells us here that it, this is made by man using not so good materials, not stone and mortar, for not so good purposes, for their own glory and not God's. They were erecting man, a man-made religion. But we need to see this for what it is. It isn't only apostasy, humans chasing after other gods, man-made gods, but it's really about trying to make themselves gods. Again, they weren't necessarily creating a stairway to God. They weren't trying to climb up to get closer to God, but they were rather attempting to exceed the prescribed human limits. What it seems they were doing was creating a representation of the realm of God who dwells in the highest heavens so that man could be enthroned there himself. This was man usurping the place of God, which really is the same sin that Eve was guilty of and her desire for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were trying to grasp after power apart from God. They, together, could do it without God. They could make their own way. At least that's what they were after. And humans are still busy after these same things today, aren't we? We're still busy building towers into the clouds, trying to set ourselves up as gods, trying to create a name for ourselves We do this in a variety of ways through our work, through our wealth, through our grasping after worldly power, through our children. We want to create our own peace, our own security, our own kingdoms apart from God. And we're terrified by the thought that we might die and our place will remember us no more. We're working to make a name for ourselves because we're working to be immortal. To leave some sort of lasting legacy that our names might be remembered for generations to come. And the result is that we become obsessed with trying to create an identity for ourselves, trying to invent ourselves and reinvent ourselves. We become obsessed with chasing after our own glory. We do it in physical space, we do it in cyberspace, building our towers on dirt and social media. And we're still busy working to bring unity, building empires founded on our own ingenuity and ideals. Doesn't this sound like the secular religions of mankind? Doesn't it sound like secular humanism? It's all self-directed. We can, by our own power and goodness, make a global society where everyone can live in harmony and peace, where everyone's needs are met, where everyone is accepted in love. Come and let us make bricks and start building. We'll build Together, ourselves, a utopia. If we just work together, then we can, by our own ingenuity, bring an end to all suffering. We can bring an end to all wars. We can bring an end to hunger and disease and global warming. We can bring an end to racism and sexism and all that brings division, right? We hear these sort of messages all around us. And the greatness of human ingenuity isn't being denied here at Babel. We can achieve great things. The Lord acknowledges this to some degree in verse 6 when he declares, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. There's a reason for that. We were created In God's image, we're created with a will. We're created to be creative. We are created to build. We're created to have dominion. We do have great potential. History is proof of this. Look at what human innovation has brought about. We have figured out how to cure diseases. We we figured out how to feed mass numbers of people. We have figured out how to fly. And not only that, but we figured out how to fly into space and how to land on the moon. We figured out how to build computers, even ones that fit in the palm of our hand from which you can access massive amounts of information. We, we figured out how to create climate controlled environments that allows us on this 90 plus degree day to sit in a room that some of you consider to be too cold. <laughs> it's really, really remarkable right Uh, people can do amazing things when they when they come together and work together but this passage stands as a warning that when people get united around a good cause apart from God very bad things can happen when people come together with one purpose apart from God things can turn out disastrous and we can even take good things like unity and peace and security and we can make them our ultimate ends. This passage is a lesson that we can actually desire the right thing in the wrong way. Was a desire for unity at Babel a bad thing? No, not necessarily. Was it a bad thing to exalt it as an ultimate end? Yes. Yes. The passage demonstrates that it's better to be divided than to have unity in peace and security if these things result in collective apostasy. This is an important lesson for the church in North America in which entire denominations are moving toward apostasy. It's better to be divided than to collectively bow our knees to the wrong thing. And it's time to be careful about what churches we, as followers of Jesus, associate ourselves with. The reality is that when these things are viewed as ultimate things, that everyone must bow their knees to them. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God is our ultimate end. And worshiping these man-made gods will never turn out well history proves this to us. We discussed last Wednesday evening how communist regimes build themselves as societies of equality where wealth is shared and everyone is cared for, but what really happens is vast poverty. The death of countless millions of people at the hands of ruthless dictators. So human ingenuity and striving created air conditioning and smartphones and vaccinations against disease, but it has done some pretty horrific things too. We have built bombs that can destroy entire cities. We've crafted diseases and labs capable of killing millions of people. We created chemicals that have caused enormous amounts of environmental pollution and have wiped out entire species of animals. We have built kingdoms That have terrorized their own people and we're currently working on things like artificial intelligence some of which might serve to benefit humanity but some of which might lead to mass suffering and destruction we should heed the warnings about these things but isn't it all about making a name for ourselves about setting ourselves up as gods, about trying to gain independence from God. This is about going into the clouds in our rebellion against God. We sought to make the perfect city and we end up finding ourselves in Babylon, a name that was intended to mean the gateway of the gods. God here will give the city a truer name, Babel, which means confused. Here's what Revelation 18 says about the great city of man. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living then I this is John heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities brick upon brick of sin and rebellion heaped up as high as heaven dearly beloved babylon is judged because she has as revelation 18 says glorified herself but this is this type of behavior doesn't have to be on a global national or even regional scale the same thing applies to each of our individual lives Are we in our own lives seeking after our own glory? Are we seeking after God's glory? Are we seeking to build our own little kingdom apart from God, or are we living for God's kingdom? There is a message here about discerning between true religion and false religion. True religion seeks God's will, which is found in God's word. So, true religion believes God's word and acts upon it. False religion follows the will of man and lives according to his word. And it leads to all manner of wickedness, seeking man as his own God. And, dearly beloved, just because one might call himself or herself a Christian doesn't prevent him or her from following a false religion. We do all kinds of things that are unchristian and we baptize them in the name of Christianity. We worship other gods, we exalt ourselves, we live in unrepentant sin. The reality is that all of us suffer from a Babylonian heart, as one commentator puts it. We have to be careful that we haven't created our own religion And called it Christianity. But we need to see the clear message of Scripture here that God is mighty and will scatter the proud and bring an end to their imagined self-importance and their vain seeking after personal glory. So second, let's look at the divine response to this sinful ambition. Now, if we're looking at the text in Hebrew, we would find that it is a skillfully crafted narrative. There are word plays used, alliteration, rhyme, assonance, a whole slew of literary devices that reveal to us that God will not be mocked. Uh, We don't get this as much in the English, but what we can see if we spend any time examining the text carefully is that the structure is chiastic. That is to say that the second half of the story is a complete inversion of the first half so for instance in verse 1 we find one language in verse 9 we find many languages in verse 2 we find a people settling in one place in verse 8 the Lord has dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth we see these people coming saying come let us do this and that and then we see God saying to himself come let us go down and confuse their language. All of these things point to a central truth. There is a striking contrast between human opinion of its self-achievements and God's viewpoint of such endeavors. As one commentator noted, human cooperation when it is fueled by autonomy and directed towards self-interest is shown by the story to be shallow, impotent hubris. Hubris. This text is intent on showing us the absurdity of this grasping for power and autonomy in light of divine sovereignty. This little project to build this tower to glorify themselves and stay as one people gets turned on its head, even as the text acknowledges the gravity of this situation. And it really is a little project in light of God's greatness despite how tall a tower those at Babel might have built and how grandiose their plans, this passage mocks their imagined self-importance. As they plot and plan, as they declare, come and let us build a tower, which, by the way, notice how that mirrors the divine plural we find in the opening chapters of Genesis, where we see God declaring things like, let us make man in our image. Here we have man saying, let us do that, this and that. Any. How? As they declare this, imagining that they can set themselves up as God's, God declares, let us go down. Don't miss this. It's as if God, here's the picture, God enthroned high in the heavens is down on his hands and knees with a magnifying glass, straining to see this little thing that these men are doing. These men imagine that they're doing something great. God can hardly see it because of its insignificance. That's the picture. He could come down and squash them like tiny, helpless little ants. As one commentator so aptly puts it, the narrative's pennant for irony is nowhere any stronger than in this verse, whose sad message is told in an entertaining style. The necessary descent of God and the humanness of the enterprise that the men were building shows the escapade for what it was. Listen to this. A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by pint-sized people. God's lofty viewpoint must be related to the previous reference to the towers reach for the heavens where the divine abides. Psalm 2 is explicit about God's attitude towards such mortal schemes. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. There the rebuke regards the Gentile conspiracy to overthrow Israel's king. Here the aspiration is more ambitious. God's tempered remarks only point up the childish character of their lark so when the text notes God's concern in verse 6 we need to understand that that God was not feeling threatened in any way by this project the the concern isn't that somehow the tower is going to disrupt God's rule it wasn't as if they could somehow thwart God's sovereign will rather God understands the danger these people pose to themselves and to others. As Stephen Lawson said in our lesson this morning on God's omniscience, God can not only see what will happen according to his will, he can see the possibilities, and the possibilities are not good here. There are injurious consequences coming if this prideful project isn't disrupted. So, God's action here is both a judgment, but it's also a mercy. His confusing their language and scattering them is a judgment much less severe than the flood, but it's a judgment against their self-centered, proud ambition. But it's also a mercy. It, It prevents misery and ruin. It prevents the wickedness that we have seen at points in history when people have organized themselves for the sake of exalting themselves as gods. But here God frustrates the plans of men. Sometimes, dearly beloved, God frustrates our plans. Sometimes he lays to waste what we were building for ourselves. And when he does this to our prideful plans, it too is a form of judgment, but it's also a form of mercy. It is a judgment against our imagined self-importance. It is a judgment against our prideful arrogance. It's a judgment against our willful rebellion against him, but it's also a mercy to remove the tremendous threat we pose to ourselves and others. This might be hard for us to see in the moment. But perhaps we should give thanks when things go disastrously wrong for us. When what we were working on so hard to build ends up in rubble and ruin. It might be that God was saving us from ourselves. And perhaps we should pray that God would more often frustrate the prideful plans of man. But one thing that we don't want to miss here is that God's endgame isn't just to frustrate man. God isn't just in heaven laughing as he messes up human Plans, Even as man's desire is to be great and to make a name for himself, even as man seeks unity for his own selfish ends because of how it might serve his purposes of power or security or whatever, God has a plan of redemption which will include giving people a name, which will include bringing about unity across all the earth through that people. So even as chapters 10 and 11 reveal that the nations have been scattered, God has a plan to ultimately bring true unity, godly unity, to create a city where he dwells and in in which there is perfect peace and joy and righteousness, a city in which he alone is acknowledged and worshiped as the one true God. And we will see this working out This plan working out immediately in chapter 12 as God calls and creates a covenant with one man through whom a promise is given. A promise of one whose name would be made great, from whom would come a great nation, not because of his own ambition, but because of God's goodness and glory. And this people would be blessed by God to be a blessing to the whole world. This man who would be the father of this people would come from the line of who? Shem, which means name. We will say more about this man and this covenant next Sunday, but as those looking back on the Tower of Babel in light of God's plan of redemption, working its way out in the person of Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, we should understand that God wasn't just about bringing unity. God is about reversing the curse of our sin, and in doing so, reversing events like Babel. Think about it what happens early in church history. The creation of the church itself. We have the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and what happens there. People have gathered from all over the the world into Jerusalem and the disciples are given the ability to speak to each in their own tongues. Confusion of tongues is lifted. People are able to understand one another as the gospel is proclaimed and as sinners are redeemed. And all those who place faith in Jesus Christ are given a wonderful gift. They're given the right to become children of God. They're given a strong name, the beloved of God. And it moves outward from there with the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles in which God is gathering for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. It shouldn't come as a shock since who was it that came when the star appeared announcing the birth of a longed-for Messiah? It was the Magi, foreigners, who traveled to bow before Jesus Christ men who had come from the east. But the ultimate end is to bring the peoples back together. And we're given a glorious vision of this in the book of the Revelation in which we find people from every nation, people and tongue, all gathered around the throne of God, crying out in one voice, salvation belongs to our God. Dearly beloved Babylon, will be destroyed. God had mercy to some degree on Babel. The only lasting city will be the new Jerusalem, which is made by God, come down from the heavens for all those who love the Lord and belong to him, who have made their lives not about living for their own glory, but about exalting the name that is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how about you? Will you be a citizen of Babylon or will you be a citizen of the new Jerusalem? In the end, those are the only two options. There's, and there's only one way to be a citizen of Jerusalem, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So dearly beloved, the Tower of Babel is a message to us to flee from Babylon and to come to Christ, who is indeed our strong tower. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would flee from all of our worldly ambitions, that we would flee from our pursuit of making our own name great. Lord, by your tender mercy, bring us to your Son. Give us a purpose for our lives to make his name great. Lord, may we feel the responsibility of taking his name to the ends of the earth that all people might flee from Babylon. Come to him gather around your throne and with one voice cry out, salvation belongs to our God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe?